June 1st, 1987, Fresno, California. 16-year-old Teresa Ann Beer has made plans to skip school and go on an adventure into the Sierra Nevada mountains with a 43-year-old self-proclaimed mountain man who is a known drug addict. His name is Russell Welsh, better known as Skip. But when Skip came down the mountain alone, the story of what happened to Teresa went from unbelievable to downright crazy talk. Because according to Skip, Bigfoot abducted Teresa and she wouldn't want to come home. This is the story of Skip Welsh, Teresa Beer, and her uncle, John Richmond. Murder, meth, and the mystery of Bigfoot. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody yes welcome 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 and for our friends in valencia yes benvingut 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 very nice there you go welcome well wherever you're listening be sure to like rate and review you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening and if you're watching us on youtube be sure to hit that subscribe button below yes you can find us on instagram at hitch to homicide with a two the number two yes or on X at H2H underscore podcast. And if you want true crime all the time, please join our closed Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws. Just go to Facebook and type in H2H In-Laws and Outlaws, answer a few questions, and you're in. That's it. It's a place where people post stories such as, my husband was heading to Verizon and warned me not to text him anything inappropriate because someone else would have his phone. I waited about 30 minutes and texted, quote, don't forget the pickaxe and construction bags. <laughs> this body isn't going to bury its f***ing self, end quote. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> oh, my God. I would have killed her. <laughs> Thank you to Maureen Martin for that one. Yeah, that was funny. That's actually something I would have done to Rob. <laughs> no lie. It is. It is. <laughs> It's also a place for our resident psychic medium, Catherine Kaufman, posts info from the Farmer's Almanac on how to get blood out of just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's some doozies on there. I'll there are. But on a more serious note, it's also a place where our family members post information on unsolved crimes because true crime aficionados are wonderful online sleuths and they're always willing to lend a helping hand. So thank you, Lisa Day, for posting about the Jane Doe they're attempting to ID in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is just a stone's throw up the road from us. Yep, I lived there for nine years. It's a great little group, so go join. We're lots of fun. Yes, please do. We're getting loads of case suggestions and true crime listener stories. Keep them coming. We appreciate everyone who listens each week and takes the time to drop us a note. Yes. Well, Rob, 
I know when you read this, the beginning of this, I'm like, no, this has got to be a joke. Y'all, I've been teasing Rob for several days. <laughs> All I've heard is, is Bigfoot. We got a Bigfoot story coming when we go into the recording booth, babe. I'm going to tell you about Bigfoot. All we have is a little foot out back, and it's a possum <laughs> that keeps visiting our fence. We've talked about the possum before, <laughs> and he will not go away. Well, drives Scotty nuts. But this sort of begs the question, because I've never asked you this. Have you ever seen a Bigfoot or known anybody who saw a Sasquatch? The only Bigfoot I knew was my high school friend, Leonard Stem, who was like 6'9 and had huge feet. Okay, that doesn't count unless he was big and hairy. (laughs) Well, he kind of (laughs) was. I am curious if any of our listeners have had a sighting or an interaction with a Sasquatch. If you got a story, send it to us. Yeah, please. I haven't seen one, so... (laughs) Well, before we get started, let me thank some sources. Strange Outdoors, the State of California Department of Justice, the Fresno Bee, Cold Case Explorations, Medium.com, the Doe Network, the Charlie Project, and Meth, Murder, and Bigfoot, a California saga by Jay O'Connell. I did read it. I will provide a link to that book and all the other sources in the show notes. All right. Well, you ready? I am. Let's do it. Teresa Ann Beer was born on April 16, 1971, to Shirley and David Beer. Shirley and David aren't going to win any awards for parenting. I'm just going to tell you right off the bat. Mm -hmm. They had a daughter, Yolanda, in 1966 while David was in Vietnam. Shirley left her baby after she has her. She leaves Yolanda with David's grandmother because she was a teenager and she had absolutely no interest in being a mother. Mm. When David returned from Vietnam, they went to his grandmother and asked to get Yolanda back. But as soon as they took her with them, David was calling his grandmother to say that Shirley was physically abusing Yolanda, and he sent the baby back to his grandmother. But their inability to parent did not stop them from having more children. They would have two more girls, Vicky and Teresa Ann, and they were both physically abused. By Shirley. Wow. When Teresa was three, her mother wrapped her tiny little leg around a slat in the crib and twisted it until she broke Teresa's leg. What? She also was beating Teresa and breaking her ribs. This is a toddler. Wow. So social services steps in and takes the girls away, and David and Shirley divorce. Go figure. Yeah. Shirley, who's mentally ill, obviously. Yeah, a little bit. Moves to Tucson, Arizona. She's never to be heard from again. Good. Teresa's oldest sister, Yolanda, was still living with her great-grandmother. But the great-grandmother couldn't handle all three girls. She's over 70 years old. Yeah. So Yolanda stayed there, and Vicky and Teresa went into foster care, where a friend from church, her name was Sylvia Pierce, took them both. Okay. Teresa and Vicky go to her home to live with her and her husband. But these two are both in their 50s. But at least they offer them a stable life. Sure. But then David, their father, wanted them back. Shirley was gone to Arizona, and he had a new wife. Her name was Margie Richmond, and she had two girls of her own. And oddly enough, Margie's first husband, John, was the half-brother of Shirley, 
David's first wife. <laughs> now try to keep up with me on this one. I need a program with numbers. <laughs> you know, people in Kentucky, we get a lot of flack. Are your parents mother, brother, and yeah. sister? <laughs> well, this is California. Yeah, exactly. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> this is California, and it's going to get even more convoluted. So we don't want to hear it anymore. So hang on. <laughs> oh, I don't care. I'm just saying. <laughs> there's crazy everywhere. There is. But David petitions the court to get the two girls back. And even though both girls have records showing abuse, he is granted custody. So the girls move in with their dad and their new stepmom in Southern California, in Compton. And let me tell you a little bit about Margie. Uh-oh. She used to lock the refrigerator. She would make herself lunch, lock the fridge, and then eat in front of the kids. What? Yeah. She whiz. And by the time Teresa has moved in with them, she's like 12 or 13. But she would get to spend her summers with her great-grandmother, Mary, mm -hmm. in Fresno. And she and her sister, Vicky both would go there. But Vicky ran away one summer when she went to live with her grandmother because she just wanted to be on the streets. Okay. And the summer Teresa did come back to live in Fresno, as soon as her father dropped her off, her great-grandmother took her to the doctor because she was severely malnourished. Yeah. Yeah. Because Margie's locking the refrigerator. And eating in front of him. Yeah. Wow. And when the summer is over and her father David comes back to get her, she didn't want to go. And her older sister Yolanda tells her dad, she doesn't want to live with you. Yeah. And Yolanda and her dad actually get into a fist fight right there. When you look under the definition of dysfunctional in the this, dictionary. This is a dysfunctional family. Yeah. Hang on. Here we go. All right. After this fist fight, in steps Uncle Johnny. Okay. 42-year-old John Richmond sees an opportunity. And since his one-time brother-in-law and his mentally ill half-sister are out of the picture, he actively pursues custody of Teresa. And most believe it was because he would get money from the government to take care of her. Uh, yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about Uncle Johnny, John <laughs> Richmond. Okay. The Fresno cops knew him. And more than that, he was known as Blind Johnny. Okay. And according to O'Connell's book, he was, quote, a doper who fenced stolen property. So he was a fence who couldn't see what he was fencing. He couldn't even see what he was buying or selling. So he was he was blind or? Well, according to Johnny, he'd lost his sight playing Russian roulette. <laughs> this isn't real. It's real. <laughs> and another story was that he had shot himself after the love of his life named Rose left him for, wait for it, Bing Crosby's son, Lindsay. You're making this up. I am not making this up. <laughs> this I'm is, not. This is nuts. I am not making this up. I believe you. Now, there were plenty of people who said that blind Johnny could see a little bit, and he actually played it up that he was blind. Sure. But Johnny had two young sons when he took in Teresa. His daughters were living with his wife, Teresa's stepmom. Okay. So are you keeping up here? The woman who locks the refrigerator, that's Johnny's ex. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm, I think I'm with you now. And Johnny is the brother to their mom who was the abuser and then went off to live in Arizona. So her mother's wife's sister's brother's brother's Yeah, it's a dogs. lot like that. Yeah, okay. It's a lot like that. Okay. 
Now, in addition to the two little boys that Blind Johnny has, mm-hmm. and I think he wanted Teresa to actually be a live-in babysitter. Okay. But Blind Johnny has a wife. The mother of these two little boys was reportedly a prostitute. <laughs> What? All right, keep going. Just take it all in. It's just, this road just keeps getting more messed up. But in addition to his wife, Blind Johnny had a 17-year-old girlfriend named Tammy Newman. Of course he did. Who stayed at the house most of the time. Wow. Truth is stranger than fiction. It really You is. can't make this shit up. No, not at all. <laughs> Now, Tammy will later say that Teresa was basically a slave, that Johnny would make her stay home from school to keep the boys, and they lived in this filthy apartment. And Johnny's wife even took the boys and Teresa with her to Southern California so Teresa would watch the kids while she turned tricks. Wow. Okay. Meanwhile, Teresa is calling her great-grandmother crying. Yeah. Yeah. She's crying because Uncle Johnny, not only is he using her as a slave— but he's sexually molesting her. And not only that, according to the 17-year-old girlfriend, Tammy, quote, he would let his friends f***ing shoot drugs and f*** her, end quote. Wow. Tammy didn't mince words. Yeah. And these men that he's allowing to be with her, they're like old guys who were in prison with Johnny, Mm. who like to shoot heroin. Now, I'm telling you all of this because Teresa had the worst kind of childhood. She was behind in school. She was even in special ed classes because she was slow to learn, and she was very immature for her age, Mm -hmm. which in June of 1987, she's 16 years old. Okay. She's finishing up her freshman year. She's 5'5 and weighs 110 pounds. She's very thin. Yeah. She had an overbite, brown hair, and her legs still had a scar from surgery from where her mother broke it. At the end of May 1987, Teresa tells her friends, Peggy and Janice, that she was going to skip school and go to the mountains with a man that she had met. And the man she'd met, Russell Shelton Welch, better known as Skip. Okay. Hang on to your panties. I'm clutching my panties. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Skip was born on July 14th, 1943 in Viejo, California. In 1965, he married Shannon Celeste Cunning, whose father was Harry Cunning, an actor in Hollywood who had bit parts, mostly uncredited, from 1927 to 1939. Her mother was also an actress in Hollywood. I couldn't find out a whole lot about Shannon, but she was the oldest of three, and her little sister graduated from Beverly Hills High School. So it seems like she came from a nice life and a nice family. Right. How she got tied up with Skip is beyond me. Yeah. But in 1987, Skip is 43 years old and sometimes a house painter who mostly lived off disability checks. Skip was addicted to meth Mm. and his wife, Shannon, had died of a drug overdose in 1985. Wow. But before Shannon dies in the early 80s, Skip was a self-described mountain man who at one time convinced the chair of anthropology at Fresno State to meet with him. Why? (laughs) Well, Skip just wasn't a Bigfoot enthusiast. He was a Sasquatch expert. (laughs) Okay. Skip wanted to meet with the chairman of the department to show him that he possessed photographic proof of Bigfoot's existence in the nearby central Sierras. All right. 
So let's take a moment and talk about Sasquatch or Bigfoot. All right. Almost every culture and continent has accounts of a human-like, giant, hairy man or wild man. And the stories go back hundreds of years. And as recent as the movie Elf. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about that, too. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. So a large, hairy creature who walks on two feet, covered in hair, between six and ten feet tall, and by most accounts say that it smells Mm. like a skunk who's rolled in dead animals and rotting flesh. It reminds me of that scene in uh, Anchorman. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And all I can say to that is, wow. (laughs) Yeah, nasty. In 1924, an article in the Oregonian made national news when they published a story about some gold prospectors where they encountered Sasquatches, plural, Mm. in a gorge near Mount St. Helens. Okay. And the Sasquatches, the Sasquatch, I don't know, (laughs) they came to their remote cabin and one of the men, his name was Fred Back, hit one of the creatures by firing a gun. And then that night, a whole bunch of... Bigfoots, Sasquatches, mm. let me tell you what, let me rewind that, Sasquatches. (laughs) Say that 10 times fast. Oh my gosh. They showed up and started throwing rocks at the cabin. Wow. And they damaged the roof and they knock Fred back out. They knock him out unconscious. Wow. And the next morning, all the men left. Wow. But when the United States Forest Service investigated, they found zero compelling evidence and they thought these guys were making it all up and they were still trying to find the sasquatchonians (laughs) (laughs) sorry oh i'm gonna try really hard to make it through some of this okay go ahead in 1958 jerry crew who was a bulldozer operator for a logging company in humboldt county california by the way humboldt county there are loads and loads of sightings in humboldt county california Hmm. But some people say that they use that as a way to keep people away from growing. The, the pot growers are there. And so they use the legend of Bigfoot and Sasquatch being um, dangerous to keep people out of there. See, I don't buy into that because if you start saying there's there's Sasquatches here, it's just going to attract people to come and try come to out find, and try to find yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't I don't buy that. Well, in 1958, Jerry found a large set of footprints, human-like prints, that were deep in the mud in the Six Rivers National Forest. They were 16 inches long. Not only that, other people had seen large footprints, and they also had a 450-pound oil drum that moved from one spot to another Mm. without explanation. Okay. And in the beginning, Jerry Crew and all the guys he's working with think that somebody's playing a prank on them. Right. But after they just keep finding these huge prints, they call a reporter at the Humboldt Times newspaper. And this is where the name Bigfoot came about. Oh, really? Yes. They made a plaster cast of the footprint and Jerry Crew appeared holding one of these casts on the front page of the newspaper, October 6, 1958. And the story spread quickly, including to the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, okay. who both wanted to do stories on this. And because of that, the term Bigfoot became widespread. I had no idea. That's great. 
Now, claims about the origins and characteristics of Bigfoot vary. The subject of Bigfoot has crossed over with other paranormal claims, including that Bigfoot is an extraterrestrial or that Bigfoot feet, Sasquatches, Sasquatchonians are psychic. <laughs> oh, jeez. And that they can shape shift and are able to cross into different dimensions or just completely supernatural beings. Well, I saw a, a Ford Fiesta that I think may have been a Sasquatch that <laughs> shape shifted it. Never mind. Go ahead. That's called foreshadowing. Ah, okay. I can't even whisper it today. <laughs> okay, let me. I'm just going to do this. There seem to be twice as many sightings of a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot in California and in Washington State than any others in the United States. Well, there's a lot of forestry and, and things out yeah, there. Yeah, the mountains. Pacific Northwest. Yeah, yeah. And today there have been over 10,000 reported sightings in the continental United States. Wow. And about one-third of all of those are located in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Now, people say that they throw rocks, these big feet, Bigfoots. They throw rocks. They're territorial. They have these territorial displays. Right. And for communication, there are people who have heard screaming. Mm -hmm. And they say it's like a banshee screaming really loud. Yeah. I mean, I've watched a few of those uh, those TV shows where they're searching for Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Yeah. Or the Sasquatchonians. And uh, they they do have audio recordings of these. They do. Of these animals screaming. Yeah. So. And you can go down a rabbit hole on the internet. You can find all kinds of photos and footage. But the one I want to talk about is the Patterson-Gimlin film. Okay. This is the most well-known oh, yeah. video of Bigfoot. Yeah. The one that's in Elf. Yep. It's the Patterson-Gimlin film. And he was recording on October 20th, 1967, Roger Patterson mm -hmm. and Bob Gimlin. They're in an area called Bluff Creek in the Six Rivers Forest area in Northern California. Right. The footage is just shy of a minute long and has become the biggest piece of evidence in Bigfoot lore and is still, to this day, highly scrutinized, analyzed, and debated. Mm. But there was, on the History Channel, just about three months ago, a documentary where they used artificial intelligence to stabilize the footage and to denoise the footage. Right. And they come up with some pretty interesting theories. Oh. I will post a link to this in the show notes. Yeah, I want that because I haven't seen that one yet. So the footage was shot on a 16-millimeter movie camera. Bob and Roger were riding horseback and filming when they came upon the Sasquatch. They would name Patty. And Patty. this is the footage that everybody has seen. And later, a guy named Bob Hieronymus is going to come out and say the whole thing was a hoax. Hmm. But now they've been able to stabilize the footage and enhance it with AI, and they've discovered a few things. Okay. They can see the gait of the creature better and the upturn of the toes. So when Patty is taking a step, it shows that she's not human. Mm. You can also see the calf muscle engaging as she walks oh, really? in the new and improved footage, which proves it's not a costume. Yeah. She's real. Right. Also, you can see... Her butt crack in the new footage, <laughs> wow. as well as her breasts that are moving naturally as she's walking. All things a costume made in 1967 would never be able to do. Sure. Patty was about seven feet tall, 
And although Roger Patterson has passed away, Bob is still around and has never said anything but that it was real. Yeah. And I will provide a link, like I said, to the History Channel episode for anybody who wants to watch it. I can't wait to see it. Now, that was a really long way of saying that Skip Welch was a Bigfoot enthusiast, tracker, and hunter. Okay. But as he met with the chairman of the department at Fresno State, he was showing nothing more than like photos that had shadows. He had no real proof of Bigfoot in his possession. Right. In 1986, Skip convinces a girl named Michelle Ryan, who is 16 years old, to go camping in the Sierra National Forest, just south of Yosemite National Park. Okay. You see, in addition to being a Squatch Watcher, (laughs) Skip Welch was an amateur mineralogist and had filed several mining claims and had looked for strategic metals in the area. And according to Skip, north near the southern Yosemite border in a steep canyon where Chiquito Creek is between Quartz Mountain and Madeira Park was an Indian burial ground. It was known as Ghost Canyon. And this is where Skip claimed the Sasquatches and the Bigfoots lived. All right. Now, Skip has a daughter, Chandra, who was 18 at the time Michelle went up the mountain with Skip. But Michelle doesn't make this Bigfoot hunting trip alone with the man who is more than twice her age. She takes with her her sometimes boyfriend, Sam, and another guy named Corky, And both Sam and Corky are in their late 20s and early 30s. Gotcha. And she's 16. Mm. Now, this was an area where girls went missing. In 1984, 19-year-old Kimberly Ann Billy went missing. 1985, Joanne Hobson, who was 16. Also in 1985, a girl named Robin Armtrout. Her body will be found. In fact, at the time, there were two guys named Wesley Shermantine and Lauren Herzog, who were known as the Speed Freak Killers. Mm. We will cover them in the future. But this is where Skip takes this trio. Through the Sierra Scenic Byway, he goes north, turning off near Globe Rock in his beat-up Pinto. (laughs) They hike back to a place that Skip called Ghost Canyon. This group gets high on methamphetamines, but also Michelle thinks that maybe Skip slipped her a little bit of LSD. Mm. And one of the reasons Michelle wanted to come to the mountains was because Skip had told loads of stories about how he himself had encountered Bigfoot. Like it's all Skip ever wanted to talk about. Skip would tell anyone who would listen that he's seen more than just one Sasquatch, but that there were colonies of them living in the Northern California mountains, and he himself had communicated with them. (laughs) Telepathically. Okay. Does um, um, Skip, would he happen to have a camera? Mm-hmm. He does, but all the pictures he takes, it's just shadows. Okay. Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, he took them to <laughs> Fresno State, and the guy was like, dude, you have yeah. wasted my time. Uh, okay. Yeah. Whatever, Skip. He would tell people that Bigfoot worshipped women and that there were devil gods in Ghost Canyon, and that there were satanic sacrifices that were made there. Skip, lay off the LSD, dude. Skip, lay off this meth, the speed. (laughs) Exactly. Now, that particular night, while these four are high on meth, Corky and Sam both would say that they saw some weird stuff. Sam saw red eyes glowing at him. In the middle of the night, Michelle woke up screaming, saying she saw a white devil the devil was three feet tall with an ugly face and big eyes. She's screaming. She's 
She's screaming, he's going to kill me. She runs toward a cliff that has this huge drop off, but Sam grabs her and brings her back to the campsite. So all this has happened, right? Yeah. That's 1986. And Skip actually brings these three people back down the mountain the next morning. But by 1987, Skip is still talking about Bigfoot to anyone who will listen, mostly, apparently, while he is methed out. On the morning of June 1st, 1987, Teresa is getting ready for school when her uncle, Blind Johnny, finds Russell Welsh, better known as Skip, Mm -hmm. on his doorstep. And according to Blind Johnny, Skip offers to take Teresa to school that morning. Now, would you allow your your ward, you know, this is your niece, would yeah. you allow her just to get in the car with this messed up guy who says he's going to take her to school? Let me think about this now. Yeah. Because in reality, the plan was for Teresa to accompany Skip into the mountains to go looking for Bigfoot. Bigfoot. She was. Now, remember, Teresa, she's immature for her age. Right. She's kind of a year behind. She's in special ed classes. She's been through trauma her whole life. She's been through trauma. She's easily persuaded. Right. Before lunchtime, Teresa's school calls Johnny to say that she never showed up. And Johnny tells the school, Teresa's homesick. Hmm. Yeah, he lies. Wow. As Teresa and Johnny make their way to their Bigfoot hunting spot, he stops first because he's having trouble with his car, a beat-up 1976 Monte Carlo. They make a pit stop at Skip's daughter's place, Chandra. Chandra's only three years older than Teresa. And Chandra's not surprised to see her dad with a young girl because her dad was always with underage girls. And she wasn't shocked to hear that their plan was to go into the mountains to look for Bigfoot. Hmm. But Chandra did ask Teresa if she did drugs. Do you do drugs? And Teresa told her, no, I don't do drugs. Yeah. And Chandra knew her dad, and she didn't have a good feeling about what was about to happen. Okay. Because everybody knew that her dad was a speed freak. Right. And what is more, he had a reputation for getting young girls high and then enticing them into doing things they might not otherwise do sexually. Gotcha. So he gets them drugged up, and then he takes advantage of them. Sure. Skip cashes his disability check, gets his car running, and the two of them are off. Teresa would never be seen again. Mm. By 9.30 that night, Teresa's uncle, Blind Johnny, calls the Fresno Police Department to report Teresa missing. Mm. He said that she might be with a mentally unstable guy, a guy he knew who was always talking about Bigfoot. So a detective named Doug Stokes shows up on June 2nd, 1987 to have a conversation with Blind Johnny. Johnny tells Detective Stokes that she left for school that day with the guy named Skip and that the school called to say she wasn't there. So he started calling around looking for her, but he covered for her at school saying that she was homesick. And then finally, he was worried about her safety after talking to people who let him know that Skip was a weird guy. Well, there's the pot calling the kettle. I'm rolling my eyes. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of ironic. I personally think that Skip and Blind Johnny know each other very well. Yeah. But Blind Johnny's acting like he doesn't really know this Skip guy very well. This weird guy. But, But that's just my take on the whole thing. Okay. What Detective Stokes finds out is that even though Blind Johnny is married, he also has this 17 year old girlfriend, Tamara Wynn Newman. 
a girl who spent most of her nights with Johnny and who might know something about Skip Welsh, he interviews her and Tammy tells him Skip is a drug addict. He's a speed freak who fancied himself some kind of survivalist who was always talking about the canyons up past Bass Lake. Okay. And what Detective Stokes learns from Tammy's mother is that she thinks that blind Johnny is involved in trafficking drugs. Mm. And Tammy tells Detective Stokes that she didn't know anything about Skip. But a girl who was sometimes his girlfriend, Michelle Ryan, might know something about him. And Michelle tells Detective Stokes, no way, this dude is my boyfriend. But that maybe Skip's daughter, Chandra, might be able to help him. So they just keep passing this detective to the next on to the next person, on to the next person. Yeah, I'm I'm having trouble keeping track of I'm everybody. sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It's just it's they're just all over so the place. So just to help you keep track. Okay. Blind Johnny, sometimes girlfriend Tammy, right. tells the detective to go speak with Skip's girlfriend. Okay. And Skip's girlfriend, who says, I'm not his girlfriend. Her name's Michelle. She's the one who went up into the canyon with him with the other two boys and came back down alive. Right. She says, you need to talk to Skip's daughter, Chandra. Okay. She might be able to help you. All right. Okay. I'm In back. the meantime, Tammy's mother, the 17-year-old girlfriend, tells the detective, blind Johnny's a drug dealer. Mm. So don't listen to anything he says. He might be talking about messed up Skip, sure. but blind Johnny's also involved in drugs. Okay. So now that you've got that straight. Yes. But when the detective actually speaks with Michelle, the girl that is thought to be his girlfriend who isn't, she doesn't tell the detective about Skip taking her into the mountains and getting her high. She leaves that part out. Right. Okay. Then Tammy, blind Johnny's girlfriend, took Detective Stokes to Linnell Malarkey's home. Why? Well, she used to be roommates with Chandra, Skip's daughter. And Linnell didn't know where Chandra might be, but she told police that Chandra had recently switched cars with her father. He was now driving her 76 Monte Carlo, and Chandra was driving her dad's Pinto. Now, one thing leads to another, and Linnell's roommate tells Detective Stokes that she doesn't know where Chandra is either, but she does know where Skip's son lives, Terry Welsh. So, Detective Stokes, can you imagine being Detective Stokes? <laughs> you know, I just imagine, you know, Detective Stokes in his in his office with this big board with these pins and threads going to different names. And after a while, it's just one big cluster of, of lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, all of this happens in a really short period of time. So, kudos to Detective Stokes yeah. because – he is like a dog with a bone. He doesn't let it go. He just keeps going where it, where the case leads him. Yeah, wow. So Stokes goes to see Skip's 21-year-old son who said that he really didn't see his dad and that his dad was a, quote, speed freak, end quote. Mm. He told the authorities his dad's date of birth and his full name, Russell Shelton Welch. And he tells the detective that he thinks his dad visited his sister the day before and then admits that he had even seen him. As well, and that when he did, he had a girl with him that fit the description of Teresa Beard. Wow. Terry told the police that Teresa was fine when he saw her and that she was excited about being out of school and going into the mountains. Now, when they track down Chandra, Skip's daughter, she tells police the same thing. 
Teresa was excited about skipping school and going into the mountains with Skip. But Chandra does tell police that she asked Teresa if she did drugs and that she said she didn't. Mm -hmm. And then Detective Stokes asks her why she asked Teresa this question. And she just point blank says... My dad's got a reputation for taking young girls into the mountains and getting them high and then forcing them to have sex with her. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine you're going to admit this about your own dad? Well, I think most of them are just like pointing at each other. I don't know anything, but he might. Yeah. And then he might and he might. Nobody wants to get in trouble. Right, right, right. But what Detective Stokes is finding out is that Skip is like, a drug user and a sexual predator who went into the mountains with a 16-year-old emotionally immature girl driving a brown 76 Monte Carlo. That's what he's whittled it all down to. Yeah. And when Stokes runs Skip's full name, they discover he has an outstanding warrant, go figure, for drunk driving. Mm. He finds out where these mining claims are, and then he narrows it down where he might have taken them. He went to the Madeira Sheriff's County Department and asked about Skip. And lo and behold, they knew the self-proclaimed mountain man and that Skip had a history of being reported missing himself, (laughs) meaning he'd go into the mountains and not come back when he was supposed to. And his family would call and say that they were worried about him. Okay. But now there's more than one law enforcement agency out looking for Skip and Teresa, including the U.S. Forest Service. And on Friday, June 5th, The Monte Carlo was seen parked by a trailer park near the town of North Fork. And Skip's friend, Dorothy Davis, lives behind the trailer park. And he had shown up there really upset and high talking about a girl that a satanic group had taken control of and physically changed into something all, quote, white looking, end quote. Oh, jeez. But police don't find Skip or talk to Dorothy just then, when they see that the car is first spotted, they just take note of it. To what? which I say, what the heck in heck? Yeah. You see the car, why don't you go looking for him? I would count that as a huge clue. Yes. Wow. But remember, it's the Madeira Sheriff's County that finds the car, and they're like, yeah, we're supposed to be looking for this car. It's here. There it is. <laughs> Our job's done. Okay, let's go home and eat. Yeah, I guess. Wow. But by now, it's the following Monday. It's June 8th, and Teresa's been gone a week. And Blind Johnny says he got a phone call, somebody threatening him. It was a woman who sounded young saying that Skip wanted her to call him and say, quote, if you continue to make trouble for him, you will have more trouble from him. Even your kids can get hurt, end quote. Whoa. And she added that Skip was, quote, Packing a pistol, end quote. Really? Yeah. She also said that blind Johnny should tell the police that Skip took Teresa to school and dropped her off and some unknown blonde girl picked her up. (laughs) So he's getting threatened and then told what to say to the police. Jeez. Two more days pass and Detective Stokes gets a phone call from Terry, Skip's son, saying he just talked with his dad and he knew where he was. Skip was at his mama's house. There you go. Why do we find criminals hiding at their mom's home? <laughs> Maybe they think that, you know, mom can take care of them. They can take care of everything. Yeah, they've always they'll make care it go it. away. Yeah. Moms make everything go away. Yeah. Maybe. Wow. So they drive over. They pick him up on his outstanding warrant for drunk driving in the Sunnyside neighborhood of Fresno. And without prompting, he tells police, I dropped off Teresa at school and a blonde girl picked her up. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is not a mental giant. They get him into the interrogation room and they start talking about, what do you think they talk to him about? Uh, Bigfoot? They talk to him about Bigfoot. <laughs> I'm not try- I'm not laughing at the situation. It's just so absurd. Yeah. Well, I mean, they wanted to get him talking. Yeah. So they start talking to him about how they understood that he was interested in Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. And for the next 10 minutes, Skip goes on and on about Bigfoot sightings in the High Sierras, hundreds of sightings, and that there was a community of Sasquatchians, as he called them, mm-hmm. several hundred, two thousands of them. And he himself had established a strong relationship with this community of Sasquatches and that he had not violated them. And because of that, they, quote, made themselves readily available to him, end quote. What would you be thinking if you were the interviewer, the, the investigator? Detective Stokes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're just looking at this guy going, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's talking a mile a minute. Yeah. And Detective Stokes is thinking he's he's methed up. Sure. He's definitely on meth right now. Right. And he's he's talking, talking, talking. But when he started talking about Bigfoot, he had a, quote, glare and stare in his eyes, almost like he was transformed, end quote. Hmm. Now, after they talked about Bigfoot and all their communities in the Sierras, Detective Stokes asked him about Teresa Beer. And he called her Sam. And he insisted that they call her Sam, too, because she reminded him of a girl in a movie who was a runaway, and her name was Sam. Is there any rhyme or reason to this? Well, Skip's not playing with a full deck. Uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's completely out of his gourd on drugs. Sure. He says he dropped Sam off at school, but not before they drove around, and she told him of her problems at home. Mm. Then she met up with the blonde girl who was going to help her hide out. He tells police he stayed in Fresno because he heard they were looking for him and that they were afraid he'd taken Sam or Teresa to the mountains. But he tells the police he wouldn't take a girl into the mountains because it was too dangerous. (laughs) But police tell him, yo, dude, we saw your car up in North Fork. Yeah. So Skip changes his story. This is, you just wait. This is going to keep happening. (laughs) This time, after he dropped Teresa off, he did go to the mountains and that the rangers and the trail crew had seen him up there alone. Hmm. So then they tell Skip, look it, both of your kids told us you were with her and heading into the mountains. So then he tells police, well, I did take her to the mountains, but she ran off with another girl into the woods and I searched and searched for them, but I couldn't find them. And police play to his, like, mountain man bravado. And they're like, dude, we find it hard to believe because you're such an accomplished tracker yourself that you couldn't find these girls. Yeah. And this time he was like, okay, quote, all the truth, bigger than life, end quote. Here, okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> he tells Detective Stokes that there are these super intelligent beings in the high Sierras and that the Sasquatches were their bodyguards. And Teresa actually ran off with one of these super intelligent beings, a female with blonde hair. He had to get the girl with the blonde hair back in. Yeah, exactly. Got to keep your, keep your story straight. Part of it straight. He told police that these beings wouldn't hurt Sam, Teresa. Remember, he's calling her Sam. Sure, yeah. 
But he also knew that we would never, quote, see her again, end quote. (laughs) Why? Well, the whole community lived underground and didn't come out. And they had this beautiful society and she would never want to come back, especially since she was being sexually abused at home by blind Johnny. This guy needs to be in Hollywood writing scripts. (laughs) I mean, that's that's original. He also tells the police that the Sasquatches were playing mind games with him and that he did search for Teresa himself the first day she was gone but couldn't find her. Then he says his car got stuck as he was driving up there and he realized it wasn't stuck but it was being held up by the bumper by a devil of some sort. And after he got away, the devil was then in his back seat. <laughs> and he tried to punch the demon in the back seat and he hit a wooden speaker back there. And he did have scrapes on his knuckles, but he said he got rid of the devil by rebuking it. Okay. At one point during the police interview, Skip, without the officer asking anything, said that if they happened to find Teresa, there would be no sign of sexual abuse. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Skip. Thanks for that little bit of info. Yeah. Wow. He claimed that although Teresa had been willing to have sex with him, He would have never done that with a young girl as he was not that way. And it was not, quote, his nature, end quote. (laughs) Whatever. So Skip agrees to show authorities the campsite he and Teresa stayed at, allegedly. He led them to a small grove of trees at the meadow's edge along Brown's Creek. And at the inner area of this grove, there was a smoldering fire among heavy layers of pine needles that appeared to be damp. And this burnt area was approximately three and a half feet wide by eight feet long. There were these blankets that were put up and they were in a specific formation. There was a camera, a purse, an off-white bra, a t-shirt, pictures of the countryside, and a picture of Skip playing the guitar while sitting by what appeared to be the blanket in the grove area where there were also pictures of Teresa. So this is all staged by Skip. Yeah. Yeah. And from the topography and the photos, the deputies are like looking at it and saying, this is a camp that's 20 miles away, probably in Ghost Canyon. Right. Even though he had lied about the campsite, the meadow and the canyon, it was all searched anyway. They sent up a helicopter looking for clues or signs of Teresa's whereabouts. They looked for her in the hillside above the Browns Creek camp. It turned out to be a blue shirt that belonged to Skip that they found. And it had meth in the pocket. Ah, <laughs> oh, Skip. Then they sent out the dogs, the bloodhounds. They were out near the camp. And the dogs detected Teresa's scent at one point, but no other clues were found. Hmm. Then on June 11th, 1987, Skip was charged with child endangerment and child stealing. So... The first that he, quote, knowingly removed a 16-year-old victim from the area and she was a truant from school and that without, he did this without legal authority. So that's his first, like, charge. Right. And then the second one is that he kept the victim concealed from the guardians. Gotcha. He was arraigned and released on his own recognizance by Judge Gallagher. However, this judge didn't realize that Judge Austin had increased Skip's bail to $30,000 after reviewing the case. Okay. And two days later, Skip is rearrested. Now, of course, they want to charge him with murder, but they don't have a body. And they have no physical evidence linking him to Teresa. No body, no charge. 
and no evidence. On Wednesday, June 17th, police interview Uncle Johnny, Blind Johnny Richmond. Blind Johnny tells police about how Teresa's mom abused her, how she was in foster care. But when police talk to Teresa's former foster parents and her great-grandmother, they learn that Blind Johnny was sexually abusing her as well. Gotcha. Skip's family members start coming out of the woodwork as if they haven't already to say that Skip was mentally unstable in his beliefs in Bigfoot. But another relative, Skip's niece, told police that she felt that most of the family believed that Teresa wasn't just missing, but that she was dead and buried in the mountains somewhere in Ghost Canyon. Right. Yeah, they believe that he's killed her, left her behind, murdered her. Yeah. Sure. Then 19-year-old James Welsh, Skip's nephew, comes forward on June 20th, telling the police that he thinks Skip took Teresa to Ghost Canyon to a burial site of the devil and that Skip had shown him a place where young girls were to be sacrificed to the devil. Mm. It was, in fact, James, his nephew, back in 1986, who told Michelle Ryan, the first girl who went up into the mountains, don't go up into the mountains alone with Skip. Remember? And then she took two guys with her. Yeah. Three days before Skip's trial, authorities dropped the child-stealing charge. They had offered to recommend a one-year sentence if Skip signed a waiver allowing them to go forward with murder charges if Teresa's body was located. But Skip says no. Surprise. The prosecution had to drop the case to avoid double jeopardy if they wanted to charge him with murder later. And Skip Welsh was free to go. And he did. Wow. Now, most people believe that Skip is guilty of killing Teresa and disposing of her body. Right. However, there is a theory that was put forward by some of Skip's other family members that stood by him that the speed freak killers abducted and killed Teresa. Hmm. Blind Johnny died of cancer around 2008, and Skip died in 1998 at the age of 54 due to severe coronary artery disease. Some of his family members have said it was an overdose. He spoke a lot to his family members about Teresa after the fact, and he would reportedly take these long, hot baths for like three or four hours and scrub his skin raw with lye soap. Really? Like maybe he's trying to wash away his sins? Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, listen, there's no rhyme or reason to this guy. Well, he's a drug addict, and he's crazy, and he's a Bigfoot hunter, and you put all those things together, and perfect storm. Yeah, exactly. Before Uncle Johnny, before Blind Johnny died, he made comments to the newspaper that he loved Teresa and that, quote, man, she's dead, end quote, and, quote, or she's been sold into slavery, end quote. What? What? There was speculation that Blind Johnny and Skip were working together, that perhaps Skip owed Blind Johnny money or some sort of favor. And with Teresa starting to tell people that she had been sexually abused by Blind Johnny, Skip needed to get rid of her for him. Mm. So it was a quid pro quo. Yeah. 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 She's breathing down my neck that I'm uh, sexually abusing her. I'm going to get, I'm going to get. Picked up for this. You owe me. Take her into the mountains and lose her. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. But here's what I believe is important in this true crime. Teresa didn't have one person who was advocating for her. Yeah. 
There were only two stories in the Fresno Bee about her disappearance, and there were no family members pushing police and the media to talk about this, to talk about her case. I mean, everything I went through with you, it's the most convoluted, you've got to be kidding me story, and yet the media didn't really do anything with it. Right. Her sister Yolanda has provided a DNA sample in case they do happen upon remains. But the case does remain open. And if you think you have information that will help the police, you can call the Fresno Police Department at 559-621-2541. I will put that information in the show notes. So sad. Before we go, there have been disappearances of people in the same area where Teresa went missing or was murdered. In 1934, Richard McPherson was a forest ranger's son. He went fishing and was found a few days later with his clothes partially removed. He was 10. In April of 2005, Doug Pierce, a retired nuclear engineer, went missing after camping near Shut Eye Peak. His car was located, but he's never been seen, and there's no trace of him since. In 2008, James Arthur, a photographer, went missing near Shut Eye Peak. He was a retired military man with extensive survival skills. His car was found, but he has never been seen again. Wow. So people go missing in these mountains. But I still think, I think Blind Johnny and Skip both had something to do with Teresa's disappearance. Sure. But that's the story of Teresa and Beer and Bigfoot. And that's all I have to say about that. to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. This story could not get any more absurd and crazy. <laughs> Just when you thought it couldn't get crazier, I mean, it got crazy. I, you know, and I felt bad having to stop you in the middle of it, but I was getting so lost. It's like, okay, recap this for me just so I can follow yeah, along. Yeah, They were all connected in one way or another, and yeah. they were all pointing the finger either backward or forward. Go talk to this person. Go talk to this person. Yeah. Yeah. But this this one detective, man, he was the one who was on it the entire time. And uh, it's it's pretty interesting. But I will post a link to that book. I will post a link to the History Channel documentary where they have used AI to enhance yeah, the footage that. of, of um, Patty. Yeah. Uh, I'll put all of that in the show notes. It's really, really um, interesting. The sad part is that Teresa Ann Beer has never been found. Yeah. And nobody seemed to care. She didn't have anybody other than Detective Stokes fighting for her and looking for her. Right. And that is very, very sad. Well, hopefully someday they will uh, be able to 
to close this. Put an end, yeah, yeah. put an end to it. Yeah. I agree. All right. Well, let's move away from Sasquatchians. Sasquatchians? Sasquatchonians. <laughs> However you want to say it. You know it. we're going to get all kinds of email from Bigfoot enthusiasts. I know, I know. I'm, I apologize now for messing it up. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, and to all the, the, the enthusiasts out there, there very well could be uh, Bigfoots out there. I mean— there's definitely something out there. Yeah. I mean, I watched one documentary where this guy was just sort of recounting his encounter with this guy. And people have said there are thousands of trail cams and people have all kinds of iPhones. And why has why hasn't anybody other than this this 16 millimeter footage from 1967? Why isn't there why isn't there better footage yeah. of a Sasquatch, of a Bigfoot? Yeah. And most people will say the encounters are short. And when it happens, you're so freaked out that you're not like trying to get your camera out. Yeah, no, I I I can buy into that. Yeah, but but I saw an interview with one guy, and he was just sort of recounting it. And apparently, the Bigfoot walked across an actual road where he was parked, and they made made eye contact. And he talked about how bad it smelled, and then he moved on. And the guy was like breaking down in tears when he was like trying to recall it or talk about it. It was that. It was that devastating to him. And he was like a, he was a hiker. He was like a big time hiker. Wow. Wow. Well, let's go from his tears of of fear and, and to tears. (laughs) Nice segue, honey. (laughs) To tears of laughter with a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right. Number one, I'm calling this one. It's five o'clock somewhere. Oh, yes, it is. Yep. A beer thief in Oklahoma knew when enough was enough. That's right? that's usually not the case. I know, but in this case it was. Once he was trapped and had nowhere else to go, <laughs> he just had a drink and chatted with witnesses. <laughs> According to reports, a man from Oklahoma smashed outdoors in a quick trip gas station to steal some beers. Oh. Yep. He then fled in his car and somehow he ended up crashing into a grocery store. <laughs> He tried to run but was cornered and had nowhere else to go. So he cracked open a beer, chatted with a few witnesses while the police were on their way to arrest him. Yeah. And that was it. I'll see you guys in court. Yeah. 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 That's pretty good. (laughs) When you've been been had and you know you've been had. Yeah. All right. You're going to like this one. Number two. Okay. Did you touch my tacos? A 53-year-old man named Dale Martin from West Virginia is in a real pickle after he took things too far when someone ate all of the tacos that he had purchased. Oh, no. Yep. According to a report, Martin became irate with someone else in the household for eating all of them. Don't don't eat another man's tacos. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's when Martin went into his bedroom and came out with a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle. Oh, wow. He fired a shot into the staircase where the victim had been standing. Another witness told police that Martin had called them and told them about the taco situation and even threatened to, <laughs> quote, get the 12 gauge and blow his effing head off. Deputies found the firearm and spent shell casings from the gunshot. Martin was arrested and charged with attempted murder. No word on where the tacos were from, but they assumed it had to be a smorgasbord of cheesy gordita crunches and other Taco Bell delicacies. So here's what strikes me. (laughs) He's mad somebody ate his tacos. Yep. 
And then he calls somebody to say, I'm mad that they ate my tacos. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to blow his and effing I'm, head and off. And I'm going to blow his head off. <laughs> and then he gets his gun. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. It That's, that could be called premeditation. <laughs> yeah. Hmm, let me think about that. All right. Number three. And finally, a not so happy meal. Oh, okay. Now, being denied a Happy Meal from a stranger could, you know, put a frown on most people, but this guy took it to another level. According to a report, a man in North Dakota refused to buy a random guy a Big Mac and Happy Meal at McDonald's and told him, quote, go get a job. Oh. So what did the random guy do? I'm afraid. Well, he pulled out a gun, threatened (gasps) him with it. Needless to say, he was arrested. Now, I also heard... And I'm making this part up. I also heard that once he was taken to jail, uh, he didn't get a Happy Meal, but he did receive a bologna and cheese sandwich in a box. So there's your North Dakota criminal Happy Meal. No. (laughs) It would have been easier if you just bought him the Big Mac and the Happy Meal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wow. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody who needs a Happy Meal and a Big Mac. (laughs) Like me. And their heart blessed or their tacos have been stolen. All you got to do is go to hitchtohomicide.com where there's a pull-down menu. You can tell us that funny bless your heart. And while you're there, you can also suggest a case. Don't forget, we have the news section on the website where you can tell us your own true crime story. They're coming in. We're going to start talking about them. Yep, bring them on. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. (laughs) Bye, y'all.